0: Today, we're joined by our West Campus, our 1463 Campus. We're joined by our Cypress Campus, our North Campus, and our South Campus. We're all worshiping together today, and let's celebrate that moment in the life of our Second Family. Could we do that? And on all campuses, we are honoring our teachers and our administrators, whom we trust our children with day after day throughout this school year. Let me tell you something. Most of us are here today for a lot of reasons. The Lord, our families, but way at the top of the list, are those who teach our sons and our daughters. Everybody here, there's been a moment in your life that some teacher, or maybe another teacher, saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself and perhaps nobody had seen, and because of that word of encouragement that word of recognition, you became a brand new person. I can name three teachers in my walk and say they changed everything about Homer Edwin Young because of their touch in my life. I'm gonna ask all of those who are in administration, those who teach in every level, college, grammar school, preschool, if you're a teacher and in, or an administrator, would you stand to your feet and be recognized and remain standing. Just stand up wherever you are. <laughs> now, remain standing, and I'm gonna say something that everybody who is teaching or has taught knows. You don't have the strength, the ability, the wisdom, the insight to do what you've been assigned and called to do. You just don't have it in and of yourself. It's not a natural gift. You don't have enough bullets and you don't have enough love. Love is expensive. To genuinely love someone is very costly. Time, emotions, But these teachers are called to impart knowledge, maybe that's secondary, but to love and care for these that come before them day after day. You have our prayers that God will give to all of you supernatural power to really make a radical difference in this very challenging moment in which you and I are called to live. So I wonder, those who are seated, would you extend your hand toward the teacher that's nearest you? And let's pronounce a church blessing upon them. Our Heavenly Father, we extend our hands and our hearts and our applause and our encouragement upon these who in all probability have as large an assignment in the 21st century, in this 20th century, in 2030, all ahead. Lord, they have the largest assignment of perhaps anybody in the marketplace, in the world. Lord, work through them supernaturally as they make a difference with our sons and with our daughters. We give them to you, Lord. May they continue to have the passion of their calling is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. We're proud of each and every one of you. We're beginning a series of eight eight sessions together. In perhaps what is the most difficult moment in the history of the world, we'll be dealing with areas that are very, very sensitive, very, very controversial, but we'll deal with them biblically. So, if you would say during the past eight weeks, I don't agree with Ed Young, your problem is not gonna be with me. Your problem is gonna be with the Word of God, the truth of God, because that is going to be our guide. My opinion, your opinion, your feelings, your emotions, what you subjectively believe makes no difference. We're going to look at the day and age in which we live in light of biblical truth. And this is an introduction of what we're going to be dealing with, and I can assure you we're going to be in Barracuda waters, Barracuda waters. Our scripture is one that's very familiar and familiar scriptures always give us a problem because we've heard them so many times that they're slick and they do not lodge in our minds and our hearts and our lives and give real meaning and significance. Our scripture is found in Psalm 119. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Say that after me. Your word is a lamp lamp to my feet and a light in my path. If you can, and it's convenient with you, would you kneel with me as we pray? Father, we're in deep waters, and we're so thankful that as many of us are slowly descending to the bottom, the bottom of the ocean, that Jesus Christ has already gone to the bottom of the ocean and he has picked us up and is bringing us to the top, and we now breathe air because your Son and our Savior has resuscitated us and he has saved us. At this time, Father, you speak. Let me get out of the way so that thy word and thy word alone might be heard for it is our prayer made in Jesus' name, amen. Traveling down the cultural highway is a Toyota Prius. It's driven by a female with Prescription sunglasses on, multicolored. Uh, On the dash is a Sierra Club. Little sticker. Uh, On on the other side, there's a phrase that says, hug a tree. Uh, On the back bumper, you have a picture of Rowan's Thinker, and it says, I think, therefore, I am a liberal. Traveling in the opposite direction on our cultural highway is a Dodge Ram pickup. The driver is Bubba, a redneck, a good old boy. He has a a gun rack there behind him, NRA sticker on his windshield, his back bumper says, God guns and guts gives America freedom. Now, you've got two cultural road warriors The Prius is headed for her blue state and the Ram is headed for his red state and they're diametrically opposed to one another. Now if we would pull out the female and pull out the male and we would ask them a simple question What does God have to do with America? Now, the Ivy League educated female in the prescription sunglasses would say nothing. I do not believe there's a God, and if there is a God, it certainly is not the God of those hypocrites who say they believe the Bible. God has really nothing to do with America because I don't believe there's a God. Pull the good old boy out of the Dodge Ram. He would tell you something entirely different because you know, uh, when he was six years old, his grandmother took him to vacation Bible school and his parents had christened him when he was born and why he goes to church you know, virtually every Christmas and always on Easter and goes to a wedding service now and then, but he knows, has spent more time with Bud Light than he has the Bible. But he would tell you that without America, God is out of business. Now, I venture to say that both of these cultural road warriors are wrong. They're both wrong, and they do not understand and cannot comprehend the very depth in which we find ourselves today here and around the world. No real understanding, no real comprehension, and no idea where God fits in. In 1917, in Petrograd, Russia, now St. Petersburg, the second largest city in Russia, they were having a convention of all the priests in the Orthodox Church, thousands came. In 1917, Russia was called by many Holy Russia because over a hundred million plus people claimed to be Christians and their worship services in beautiful edifices with all their icons were packed every Lord's day. Holy Russia. And these priests were meeting in a giant convention, came from all over the land, they spent two days talking about their liturgy. Do I, we have all the words right, all the doctrines right? And they walked through all their liturgy to make sure that they dotted every I and crossed every T in their theology. Now, the last afternoon they were there in this convention, they debated over what color their surpiece would be in different Seasons of the year in different times of ceremony. It'd be pink or red or brown, and there were hot debates about the color that they would wear in their surplice on their robes. Six blocks down the street, there was a group of radicals called Bolsheviks who were planning for a revolution that would absolutely change everything about Russia. The church was tremendously powerful, but the church was silent. And in eight months, there was a form of government, that in its very foundational document says, there is no God, and there we have the roots of communism while the church, which could have been powerful in this moment, was virtually silent behind the stained glass and the icons and all of their pious, accepted rituals. Ladies and gentlemen, let me say something to you, and you can believe it or not, but I can assure you that we are at war. We are at war. And the problem is so many of us do not know who our enemy is. Some things we would say and some people would say, well, there is our enemy when that's not our enemy. These are victims of the enemy. We do not know the strategy of the enemy. We do not know the weapons of the enemy. We do not know exactly where the battlefield is and we don't know what to do, how to respond. We don't know the weapons that we have available to us. We don't know the sphere of the battle that is going on and we don't know how to win. This is where we are today. Now, in light of this, everybody agrees on one thing, liberals, conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, uh, socialists and capitalists, you look at anybody everywhere in America and they all will agree that we're in a mess. Corona political divides Family The business world Education anywhere you go you say man. We are in a mess. We are messed up. We are in a big big hole everybody agrees on that and everybody points blame and some who are really guilty of gross naivete, they say, well, we can't blame anybody. When there is no cause, there's no solution. And others say, you know, you can't can't turn back the clock. If you've ever said that, that's the dumbest statement that ever has come through your lips. Well, you know, you can't turn back the clock. The clock is man-made. And when the clock is not keeping the right time, you turn it back. The idea, well, you you don't wanna go against history. I love that. You know, history, you, you can't go against history and and we're in a progressive stance now. We're not a part of progression, we're a part of regression. And when history is taking you the wrong way, you have to do about-face and you have to go back up and reclaim and reset the clock. So, in light of all this, And we'll be dealing with specific things in the next eight weeks that all of us will have to confront. A little introduction to where we're going. There has been a total sexual revolution in America, total and complete, total and complete sexual revolution. There's been a redefinition on every front, and most of us As Christians, we don't really know how to respond. We'll deal with that. And in our teaching, I will not use a violin. I love the violin, it's my favorite instrument. But on a battlefield, a trumpet is far more effective. And a trumpet will be sounded, but hopefully the notes of the trumpet will be words spoken in love and with a tear in my eye and a tear in your eye and a tear in my heart and a tear in your heart. In this SOS moment, I've done like I have so many times done, all of us have done this, We'd say, Lord, this is so big. All the different voices and all the different propositions, the different philosophies, the different theologies, the different approaches, the different backgrounds, and we have a a multiplicity of cultures coming together in this cultural war. Lord, help me. Dear God, give us a eternal perspective. Lord, I want your word to come and give guidance. Speak. Anyone who's sincere and knows anything of God, you've had moments like that, and many of us have moments like that right now. Lord, give us some answers. Give us some direction. Give us some definitions. Give us some approaches at this moment in history. And in the process of asking for God to speak, he reminded me of something that I knew. And at times of pain and sorrow and doubt and fear, we forget sometimes what we already know. And God said in my heart of hearts, I've already given you my word. You already have my word about all of this that you're so concerned about and you're questioning. And I said, sure, I I get it. You've already spoken. We have his word. The word of God came to us at Christmas. That was the word. The Logos became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. So nobody had to wonder what God is like, bang, there he is, Jesus, Jesus, the Word of God. Also, we have the Word of God not only in flesh, in Jesus, we have the Word of God in wood, and that's the cross. How much does God care? How much does God want to intervene in your life, in my life, there is Jesus hanging on that cross, and he took all of our shame and sin and hypocrisy and he took it upon himself and he died for you and for me so that now we have a straight shot to the Father and because we've received him, can you believe it? God looks at you and looks at me as if I am perfect and you are perfect and you are complete and I am complete. And you are righteous, and I am righteous." God's Word was on wood. Also, God's Word is on paper. Paper, the book, the Bible. Papyrus, Bible, biblos. And now we come to the Bible, people say, well, what is the Bible? Let's go back to the basics. The Bible, first of all, is something that we already know. It's a library. The Bible has 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. You walk through the old, it's not really that complex when you look at it from a whole perspective as a library. You have, first of all, the five books of law, and then you have history in the Old Testament then you have poetry, then you have the major prophets and the minor prophets, bang, zip, there we have 39 books. Go to the New Testament, not too complex. We have four stories, the biography of Jesus. We have Acts, the history of the early church. We have Paul's letters, and then we have the general epistles, and then we have Revelation. It is a library. Also, the Bible is literature. People forget that, and they forget the Bible was written by 40 authors, 1,600 years, and it is literature. In that literature, you have different forms of speech. You have different vehicles to get the Word of God out. You have poetry. You have prose. You have hyperbole. You have parables. You have didactic teaching. You have all kinds of methods that God used in his get this word salvation history working uniquely through the Jews in the old and the new always pointing to the Messiah to Jesus who would come. It is a library. It is literature, and you don't read poetry like you do biography. Do you get that? You don't read apocalyptic literature the way you do parables. Therefore, when people say, well, you know, the Bible, it's so hard to understand, and you can make the Bible say anything you want to say, somebody who makes that statement is Phi Beta Kappa on ignorance. You read the Bible, and first of all, there's that word exegesis, don't get lost in that. You just read the Bible and understand the words that are there, the context that is there, and you understand what the author was saying, inspired by Almighty God, because it's a human book and a divine book, 2 Timothy 3.16, Theonustus, it, it speaks. God spoke through, spoke through human beings who put down his word to mankind. So we read the Bible, we look at that, it is exegesis, and what did it mean there and then? You follow me? What did that mean there and then? And that's a whole part of another big word, hermeneutics, which is the science of interpretation. And in this, we see now what the Bible meant there and then. Now we see what it means here and now. That's the practical application to you and me in 2020. And therefore, you can't just say, well, it means it. No, 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 no. We, We approach it with these understandings, and we see this is the Word of God, and it is a sword, and the Holy Spirit applies it. How important it is that we understand that because it just throws aside so many pseudo-intellectuals who try to discount it and put it on one side and say, well, how do you know this and how do you know that? Listen, not not anything written as history in the Bible has ever been refuted by anthropology or by archeology span over and over again, the personalities and the history has been absolutely nailed down as true truth. The Bible is a library. The Bible is literature, and the Bible is law. Well, we don't like that in 2020, do we? We don't like anybody who says, thou shalt not. We don't like anybody who says, thou shalt. Well, it's way too dogmatic, but the Bible is law. We look at the Old Testament, we say, well, I don't know about all those laws. See, there was ceremonial law. That's all the feasts, the celebrations, etc And that's been basically fulfilled in Jesus. There is civil law, they had a theocracy, and that civil law has been put aside. But in the Old Testament, there is moral law, and that moral law still stands and is relevant today. But some people, are upset about that. <laughs> they looked at the Ten Commandments, they say, well, in the Old Testament, there is that Jehovah God who was mean and legalistic. And in the New Testament, we have Jesus, who is so sweet and nice and full of grace, and there must be two different gods. Not so. The Ten Commandments are based upon the principles of love. For example, Love can love only one God. You can have a multiplicity of God. Love loves, loves the true and living God alone and exclusively. Love does not steal. Love does not lie, bear false witness. Love does not commit adultery. So you go around all the law that we find in the Old Testament, we say that it's just expressions of God how much he loves us so that we'll live lives that are relevant and powerful. And Jesus explains and amplifies the law with beatitudes. By the way, there's nothing in the beatitudes that you'd get there through common sense. Do you know that? Well, it's just, no, no. Nothing in the beatitudes of Jesus thought you would get there through common sense. It is uncommon divine sense. He takes the legalism and he explodes it into every area of your life and mine. So we know that there is law in the Bible that tells us how to live. Now, I read something interesting this summer. For thousands of years, we have known that when you are growing something, that it's wise to weed. Why do we weed? Because weeds take away the water and the nutrients from the primary plants that we have put in the ground to produce fruit, so weeding is wise. But recently, advanced scientists, horticulturists, looked at all around the world poverty by poor farmers, those who farm crops. They went to Africa and they discovered 28% of the poor farmers in Africa do not weed, or they weed very little, not enough and therefore they lose 28% of their crops. They lose profit from 28% of that which they're growing because they do not do a very simple thing, doesn't require any particular ability, just simply to weed. In China, up to 50% of the rice harvest is lost because they do not weed. This is the poorest farmers. Now to say that's a little high, let's say just 10% in Africa and 10% in, in China would weed, they would have 20 or 30% more profit and they'd no longer be poor farmers. Now, I looked at my life and said, Lord, do you need to do any weeding? Any attitudes I have, any words that I have, any situation I'm in, a lack of forgiveness, a lack, and God will tell us in the Holy Spirit, and that is the law He gives. You need to weed, need some weeding. And that comes in obedience to the principles God has given us through love, through thou shalt and thou shalt not. So the Bible is a law, it is a law book. But primarily, the Bible is light. I love that. That's our scripture. The Bible lights us where we are now. It gives lights where we're going. Here and there, it is a light. And light just eliminates all darkness. And when we read and study and begin to understand the Bible, maybe just a little verse at a time, all of a sudden, light comes into your life and comes into my life. But there are those skeptics out there that said, well, it may be myth. Who knows that all of this is true? How can you stand there in 2020 and say, this is the inerrant word of God given from God and say, we know that it is really true. We could spend time with the bibliographical test. We've looked at that. We can look at the history. We've looked at that. But what I like to deal with And years ago, I was in the basement of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. We had about a room half full of evangelicals, Bible believers, and half the room of Jewish rabbis and scholars, and we debated as to whether or not that Bethlehem was the first coming, and when Jesus comes back, will it be his first coming or his second coming? Interesting. Never forget that night. We stayed up after 1 a.m. in the morning. In the process, when dealing with this, the best thing you can say to Jewish scholars, and boy, they'll do flip-flops when you get in this area, and you say simply, let's look at the prophecies in the Old Testament and see if they're fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. So that would be the coming of the Messiah. Well, let's just take eight prophecies, okay? Eight prophecies that Jesus could not have intentionally fulfilled concerning his birth, his death, and eight facts. And let's take it to Las Vegas. I know no one here has ever been there, but uh, let's just go to Las Vegas and go to the bookmakers, and let's just ask a question. What are the odds that just eight prophecies written, man, 800, 1,000 years before they came to fulfillment, would come true in one man. Eight prophecies in one, what are the odds? And the odds were given, by the way, by Dr. Peter Stoner, who was professor of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena Community College and other universities. He took some 600 students that were under his tutorage and they had this project. They would simply decide mathematically, what are the odds eight prophecies would be fulfilled, written 800, 1,000 years before in the Old Testament, fulfilled in one man, and the odds they decided was one to 10 to the 17th power. Now most of us have been out of school too long, we don't understand that is one with 17 zeros accurate. That's the odds that eight prophecies would be fulfilled in one person. Well, that's up the ante. Let's say, what would be the odds of 47 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus being fulfilled? The odds are 10 to 157 powers that be fulfilled. Well, let's take all the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, who would be the Messiah, so you could absolutely identify him. Let's take all 332 prophecies that were perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ, what are the odds, let's put it mathematically, if you picked out one atom, follow me, one atom out of a trillion, trillion, trillion atoms from a billion universes the size of our universe, you'd mark one atom and somehow you would accidentally pick up that one atom out of a trillion, trillion, trillion atoms on a billion universes the size of ours, that's the odds that 332 prophecies would be fulfilled in one person. Does anybody want to debate with the truth and the authority of the Word of God? Amazing. So, we can stand here confidently and say, This is God's word, and this is God's truth. Empirical evidence, scientific evidence, mathematical evidence. How could this be? It must be that God has written it down that day and that time Theonisus to individuals whom he touched and inspired and put it together. Now, bring all of this. The Bible would instruct us in this moment of extremity, but Somebody would say, well, how do we know things are really as bad as they seem? Let me tell you some a sign that you perhaps do not realize before every revolution in modern times There has been a deterioration of music Every revolution Every one of them, you can look at it and study it. In modern times, a sign that that country is in serious shape has been a deterioration in music. You see, music bypasses all logic in our mind. Music is the language of God. Man didn't invent music. Music was here when man got here, reading Job and Psalms. Music is the, by the way, God has two languages, music and silence, music and silence. Look at the book of Genesis. God said, let there be light. What language did God use? God said, what was his language? Most theologians think it was music. God said, let there be light in the language of music. Question, how for thousands of years did emperors rule China? Large hunks of territory, thousands of years they ruled. What form of government did they use? They let every city and every province virtually govern themselves, but the emperors would disguise themselves and walk through these cities and through these provinces, and they would listen to the music. And if the music was sinister, cold, minor key, vicious, the words harsh, the emperor would know that there's a problem in this city and would send his troops, and they would change leadership. But as the emperor went through and listened to music, it was sweet and positive and uplifting and then dynamic and powerful. The emperor would know that that particular part of his reign was healthy and whole. Music is like nuclear power, ladies and gentlemen. It can be used for tremendous good and it can be used for devastating harm. Somebody said, Let me write the music in your land, and I don't care who writes the laws. I've spent the last month plus on a little balcony, and and kids have walked by. They didn't know I was there reading and studying, and they would walk by the walkway and play out there in the grass, and I listened to their music. Couldn't help but listen to their music. I listened to the words. I heard their conversation. This went on for day after day after day, and I can tell you the music, the rap, basically in America today is cold and hard and profane beyond anything most of us can imagine. Quickly, I ran into a verse I'd never seen before. Isaiah, chapter 56, verse 10. His watchman, God is speaking to Isaiah when they're in the middle of a cultural war in which they lost, by the way. Isaiah, the prophet, lost the battle for the land. But in the middle of that war, God says, My watchmen are blind, all of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, dogs that don't bark, dogs unable to walk, dreamers lying down who love to slumber. Ladies and gentlemen, we are God's watchdogs on our world, on our society, on our city, on our families, and the problem is we are not barking. One word summarizes all that we've been about. Bark, bark.